I have called up in all my years of sorcery no god or devil, no demon or lich or shadow which I could not control fascination attending in his brain. He it is verily known by few. But and the thing was a streaming ooze of charnel pollution, a foulness beyond the black leprosy of hell, and I could bear it no men more. To chase a noble stag in the nearby forest. Overtaking horse and rider, he caught them with one hand. Gibbous, dreaming of conquest and of vaster necromancies, the they grew silently priests and women, it is told, me picked up as they fled, and pulled limb from limb as a child might quarter an insect. The double shadow. Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week we'll be covering The Mandrakes. But before we start with the actual story, we just wanted to announce the winners for our contest. And what was the what were the details for the contest? We were asking people to write a synopsis for a lost or unwritten Averone story and submit it through our Twitter, our Facebook, our website, etc. We got quite a number of submissions, uh, some very excellent ideas in case people are interested in writing some of these up. That would be awesome. And from them, we picked four winners. Our first winner was Jason Rambaz, and his submission went as follows. In the decaying ruins of an unnamed abbey, a young woman finds a manuscript purporting to be a true and accurate account of the habits and deeds of the wild Lukgaru. She returns to her village and becomes obsessed with proving the validity of the document and the veracity of the existence of the feral beasts to the disbelieving townsfolk, going so far as to maul an old woman in a manner consistent with the manuscript to provide evidence. She is caught and cast out of the village, wandering in madness through the primeval forest until, joyously vindicated at last, she meets her death on the claws and teeth of a loopgaru. So that was Jason's, and that was excellent. The next one is from Guido Denise Fromm, and his was... In modern-day Averon, two friends embark on a road trip to sightsee the horror-haunted historical sites of the Averonian countryside. Their adventure turns perilous when they realize that their journey is closely tailed by a stalking, flesh-hungry werebeast, and they have to keep moving to survive. That's a tense one. Our next winner is Janie Litch, and here's her contribution for a lost Averone story. A highwayman is hiding out in the woods of Averone at night when he comes upon a young woman. She tells him a disturbing story about a village whose inhabitants were picked off one by one by a Lukgaru. At the end of the story, the girl reveals that she herself was the Lukgaru and devours him. And then our last winner is Pete Lenz, and his submission went as follows. The body of a sorcerer washes up on the shores of the Isole River. Whispers of his death begin surfacing around Averone and of the binding spell that died with him. Now free from the sorceries that imprison their shape-shifting abilities, an ancient family attempt to reclaim their wolfen birthright. So, great job. To all of our winners, awesome stuff. I feel like we should make a clarification. We didn't just choose all of these because they have werewolves in them. 
I know um, that's such a clear theme. <laughs> yeah, the the rules of the contest were that we were going to pick one, which was Jason's, and the rest would be chosen from all of the submissions at random. And I think we just had such a large percentage of werewolf-based submissions that we ended up picking three of them. Werewolf-based submission, my next erotica. <laughs> <laughs> However, today's story actually also sort of doesn't quite have a werewolf in it. It no. has another werewolf tease for Phil. He got excited. Oh, yeah. Okay, so what do we know about The Mandrakes by Clark Ashton Smith? Well, we know it was originally published in Weird Tales and that it was published in February of 1933 alongside stories by Lovecraft, Derleth, Kirk Mashburn, Otis Adelbert Klein, and others. Now, this is the place where we have a little egg on our face. We have to hang um, our heads in weird shame. Yeah. Internet shame. It's Internet shame. Fault. I know. We blame Phil, though, if you're looking for a scapegoat. That's fair. I put, I put the list together. The, um, Phil put together a list which was supposedly <laughs> based off of when the dates were, when the stories were originally published. Unfortunately, he got some bad data off of Wikipedia and some odd ordering, and we ended up going back through it with the Internet Speculative Fiction Database, which provided us with the dates of the original publications as well as covers, listings, whatnots, and got our list changed around. So Colossus should actually come after this and Beast and I think possibly Holiness too. So we're doing this slightly out of order. But let's face it, Colossus was a really fun story. Yeah, it was. So I don't feel too bad about that. In the timeline of the actual stories, the years that they take place, did we do Colossus in the right place? No, because um, Holiness takes place before... Well, Holiness takes place before, way before, and then after, I believe, Colossus. And yeah, this, yeah, this story takes place... In the, 14th, um, in the 1400s, the 15th century. Yeah, so this, this one takes... Yeah, so I mean, he seems to have written them so, such that they would jump around in time a little bit. Um, and also, I mean, he wrote them and they were published all out of order from when he wrote them. So, you know, it, it's hard to, it's hard to, uh, something. I lost the train of thought. I'm I'm annoyed by the mistake though because I really like to try to put myself in the shoes of like a Weird Tales reader in the 1930s and to think about the stories as they were originally right. consumed. Um, and the fact that we read Colossus before uh, before the next three stories kind of ruins my uh, my game. But we'll be much more accurate with, uh, with Zethik and, and Hyperborea, so um, I'll be able to live my fantasy 1930 life nice. uh, when we do those. <laughs> okay, so the Mandrakes. Gilles Crenier, the sorcerer, and his wife Sabine, coming into Lower Averon from parts unknown, or at least unverified, had selected the location of their hut with careful forethought. The hut was close to those marshes through which the slackening waters of the river Iswal, after leaving the great forest, had overflowed in sluggish reed-clogged channels and sedge-hidden pools mantled with scum like witches' oils. It stood among osiers and alders on a low, mound-shaped elevation, and in front, toward the marshes, there was a loamy meadow bottom where the short, fat stems and tufted leaves of the mandrake grew in lush abundance, being more plentiful and of greater size than elsewhere through all that sorcery-ridden province. The fleshy, bifurcated roots of this plant, held by many to resemble the human body, were used by Gilles and Sabine 
in the brewing of love filters. Their potions, being compounded with much care and cunning, soon acquired a marvelous renown among the peasants and villagers, and were even in request among people of a loftier station, who came privily to the wizard's hut. They would rouse, people said, a kindly warmth in the coldest and most prudent bosom, would melt the armor of the most obdurate virtue. As a result, the demand for these sovereign magistrals became enormous. And that wasn't the only thing that became enormous. Am I right, guys? (laughs) So we have two sorcerers who move into town. And they they specialize in love potions. They're like, you know, <laughs> yeah, they're like Viagra salesmen, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I do wonder where they came from and what their motivation was for moving here and whether they've always done love potions or whether mandrakes are just really good for that. So they said, hey, we'll go the love potion. Yeah, I don't know. We know, uh, we kind of find out later where Gilles comes from. Well, where he's rumored to have come from, but we don't know anything about Sabine, about her history. Um, I tried to do a little bit of research on just why, because mandrakes come up a lot in occult, uh, and just like, I mean, they're in Harry Potter, they're sort of like a thing that a person talks about. I don't really know why exactly, um, but they're kind of mentioned all over the place. Like, they're mentioned in the Bible, and they're mentioned by L.F.S. Levy, and Shakespeare, and Machiavelli, and J.K. Potter, like, they're sort of all over the place. J.K. Rowling, yeah, not J.K. Potter. Uh, Yeah, they have a huge occultish... Uh, history. My favorite legend of theirs, because it's just horrific and disgusting, is that they're said to grow where the semen of a hanged man hits the ground, which is really upsetting and, classy. and strange. Yeah, it's, it's a classy legend. <laughs> uh, in this is just a random aside. In Paul Verhoeven's last movie before he made RoboCop, which is this like hilarious, uh, like medieval movie that has Rudger Hauer and uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh in it, I think they actually dig up a um, a mandrake that is made from uh, the semen of a hanged oh, man. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. cool. Cool, disgusting. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a mixture of the two. <laughs> I suppose people used to think it was seed. So, yeah, exactly. Um, but I don't. I, I, I mean, I only did the most cursory of research, which is to say, I went back to Wikipedia immediately after it burned <laughs> me. Um, so I don't. I didn't really have much on why you know how mandrakes acquired the uh, the reputation. Um, My theory is just because they look kind of humanish with the way that they branch out. Yeah, they into do. Things that look like arms and legs. And right. so they're kind of white and fleshy colored. Mm-hmm. And I think people just ran with that. So even the semen of a hanged man makes sense. It didn't get to gestate in a woman. It gestated in the ground. So it gave forth a stumpy thing instead of a, a baby. It's a little weird, but this is weird fiction. So I wonder if you can eat one. They always look like ginger roots to me. It, it uh, you they're they are poisonous, but I think that um, you can eat a little bit of them. And they, I, I don't, I don't think you would ever make like mandrake pie recreational, well, or like recreational drugs. Oh, out of them. Right, I think right. they have some psychoactive elements, but like probably like a lot of poisons have some right. psychoactive mm-hmm. elements. So <laughs> right before uh, you die, as your yeah. brain's shutting off, it's giving out chemicals. <laughs> You'll get an enormous <laughs> erection. Right. <and> <laughs> <sighs> Keep it classy tonight on Double Shadow. So Gilles and Sabine, we find out after that first passage that it's around the 15th century. It's the 1400s. And magic and witchcraft, as we know from the other uh, Averon stories, it's not very, it's not looked kindly upon in the the province of Averon. 
Um, Although everybody goes to these people. Right. They make it a, a note that while witchcraft and sorcery are looked down upon, people make the most out of their services and they trust them and they go there because they're helping keep marriages together, you know? Yes. And because they keep marriages together, the church kind of overlooks the uh, the rest of it. I guess the rest of it being the scandalous affairs and such. Yeah. Yeah. And also just the fact that I think that they're using witchcraft. Well, that's church. It technically probably shouldn't be into. Oh, wait, and uh, then we get our werewolf tease because they, yes. uh, they talk about we how do. Gilles, there, there was a rumor that he'd been driven out of Blois. How do you say Blois? Blois? <laughs> it's the weirdest town name I've ever seen. And this is oh, coming it's actually, from a, it's, it's actually a region of, of France yeah. that does actually really? exist. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they, they say that Gilles was driven out of Blois and that his last Can you say name, it again? Blois. <laughs> okay, I'm done. Go ahead. And that his last name, uh, Grenier, is um, is held by people who are werewolves. And he's kind of fuzzy and weird looking. Um, Phil said that he has hair almost up to his eyeballs. I'm not sure. Yeah, they I called. Yeah, they called attention to the excessive hairiness of the wizard, whose hands were black with bristles and whose beard grew almost to his eyes. Fair enough. Boom. But we don't hear anything else in the story about him being a werewolf. Right. There's no other indication of his like lycanthropy is right. also noted. So it's like he's just a hairy dude. Yeah. Sabine, on the other hand, is hot and younger. Gray eyes and wheat-colored hair. Um, and Tim, is this a happy union between the two of them? Well, you would think for a couple that sells Love Potion number nine, but no. People hear that they fight all the time and then they joke behind their backs like they should sample the wares you would think but maybe they don't like that so they don't you're saying they wouldn't use you would they wouldn't use their own love potions on themselves it is an interesting question like why why don't they use the love potion on themselves you'd think um maybe they don't want to be under any spells it could be maybe they don't trust each other can you imagine if Gilles made a potion and sabine's like oh i'm not taking that you know right. you could make me your slave for the rest of my life i'm i'm not drinking that or maybe they <laughs> maybe they know that the nature of magic is temporary and however they truly feel magic isn't going to undo it it's just going to put a balm over it for a little while and eventually mm-hmm. it's going to come back maybe that's how they got started and doesn't work on them right. anymore Right. They're, they're like addicts. They can't, there's not a strong enough love potion. I picture uh, them as like that. this hippie couple that like rolls into town in their VW bug, parks by the river. I like to think that they're just down the trail from Mother of Toads and like sometimes oh. they get together and oh, like hang God. out. I like that the people of Averon are always A, going to these people, even though in getting their magic, but they're also sort of always willing to make, well, not always, but two times they're willing to make jokes about the things that are going on. Right. Like they were joking. <laughs> Remember they, they made sort of, what was it in, in Maker of Gargoyles that yeah. gets referenced? And then here they're like, oh yeah, those two crazy sorcerers always throttling each other and fighting. They <laughs> should take their own love potion. Yuck, yuck, yuck. <laughs> um, I had this, I noted this ridiculous sentence in this section that reads as follows. The connubial infelicities of Gilles and his wife, whether grave or trivial, in no ways impaired the renown of their love potions. The connubial infelicities. <laughs> Let's just... Let's just let it. Let's just let it ride. Yeah, the new just... felicities and scene. <laughs> <laughs> so what does I that mean? Even... Uh, they weren't happily married, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had big fights, and we learned also that this this love potion is not like uh, that magic in uh, that movie where the woman's emotions affect her food. 
Remember that movie? Oh, yeah. Because the fact that they hate each other doesn't affect <laughs> right. the, this, like, the fact right. that it does affect the love, right. the potency of the love potion. You know? Which is probably why the townsfolk are able to just shrug it off because their stuff works. It doesn't matter if, they're, if they have a good relationship. Things just sort of keep going as they're going. And then five years later, suddenly no Sabine. Jules just blows it off. He's like, oh, yeah, she's visiting relatives. She went home to see her mother. It was then in mid-autumn, and Gilles told the inquirers in a somewhat vague and indirect fashion that his wife would not return before spring. Winter came early that year and tarried late, with deeply crusted snows in the forest and on the uplands, and a heavy armor of fretted ice on the marshes. It was a winter of much hardship and privation, when the tardy spring had broken the silver buds of the willows and covered the alders with a foliage of chrysolite, Few thought to ask Gilles regarding Sabine's return. And later, when the purple bells of the mandrake were seceded by small orange-colored apples, her prolonged absence was taken for granted. Gilles, living tranquilly with his books and cauldrons and gathering the roots and herbs for his magical medicaments, was well enough pleased to have it taken for granted. He did not believe that Sabine would ever return, and his unbelief, it would seem, was far from irrational. He had killed her one evening in autumn, during a dispute of unbearable acrimony, slitting her soft, pale throat in self-defense with a knife which he had wrested from her fingers when she lifted it against him. Afterward, he had buried her by the late rays of a gibbous moon beneath the mandrakes in the meadow bottom, replacing the leafy sods with much care, so that there was no evidence of their having been disturbed other than by the digging of a few roots in the way of daily business. Creepy! Yeah, I love this passage. Yeah, I love. So do I. I this I think I lo- to me this ahead. is Smith's um, this is Smith's first real horror story. You know, because that was that's like such a horrific statement, just right there. Oh yeah, he slitters through so casually. Well, it's 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 amazing how casual it gets brought up, and it and like it, hold on, let me find the exact. Um, and like it's casual, but it, I feel like it's also played for a really morbid comedy mm-hmm. because it's like, like the narrator, and I believe this story does actually have like a literal yeah. "I am a narrator" moment, right. which is interesting. Like narrator clearly knows what happened, but he still like makes this sort of funny, but not like haha funny, uh, comment about Gilles not believing his wife will return right. either, which is you know like clearly he knows she's dead. Um, it's just it has like it's such an unusual effect. Um, in the writing, yeah, it, it, it completely yeah. takes you off guard because there yeah. he, he keeps building up and building up. It's the it's the the Ashton Smith escalation effect. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know, like it, it it feels like a um, I agree, but it, it like it it's so different than how horrors are normally related right. in in this kind of like pulp fiction because um, normally it would be like. Not normally, but I think on average you would get a pretty gruesome murder scene. Right. And, and this one, it's related in such a different way. It's really notable. Yeah. See, this is also why I like Smith is because it could be murder often can be seen as a very one-sided thing. But he kind of goes out of his way in that part and then towards the end to talk about how awful Sabine was and how she would often attack him and scratch him and yell at him 
Yeah, and, and then, he grabbed the knife out of her hand. Right, she so was going this, to kill him. Yeah, it does literally say in self-defense, yes. which, you know, is is interesting. And I hadn't really even picked up on it when I read the story the first time, but, like, that seems to be such a notable thing to put in a murder description. Right. And I don't think that Jill is ever really sympathetic, but it's certainly no, morally I, complicated the situation. Exactly. And I think that's why it's so horrific is because he he could have been sorry for it and he could have gone to the whatever the law and said, Oh, this happened and it was an accident. It was I was acting self defense, but no, he just buries her and goes back to reading reading books and brewing potions, telling people that she went on vacation. Yeah, and I feel like the law might have believed him. Oh, I mean, absolutely. they might have taken that opportunity to, to arrest him for sorcery because they felt, you know, they right. had to do something. That's but. true. I also like that it, it it points out that he kind of even forgot where he buried her, mm-hmm. which is just like, that's such a, like, if I killed somebody, God forbid, and I buried them someplace, like, where they shouldn't be buried, I'm pretty sure I would remember exactly where I did that. But Jill's just like, I think it might have been there. It might have been somewhere else. Somewhere by the mandrakes. Yeah, somewhere by the mandrakes. I don't know. And he kind of views it as like, oh, a funny irony that it's by the mandrakes. So now he could always remember where he buried her. Mm -hmm. Well, the year goes by. Uh, Okay, so, you know, she was murdered, what, in the winter, right? Um, I think right before. Autumn, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because then. But it seems to go a whole year. So spring comes around and uh, demand for love potions uh, go up. People want to be in love. And so Gilles has this increased demand and he goes to start uh, digging up mandrakes um, to make his potions. And there's this great little detail that he uses a curious trowel made from the femur of a witch to dig up the mandrakes, which is just begs so many awesome questions. Yeah, like absolutely. Smith stories. So he's digging and he's digging, and he digs up a different kind of mandrake. It seemed inordinately large, unnaturally white, and eyeing it more closely, he saw that it bore the exact likeness of a woman's body and lower limbs, being cloven to the middle and clearly formed even to the ten of toes. There were no arms, however, and the bosom ended in a large tuft of ovate leaves. Gia was more than startled by the fashion in which the root seemed to turn and writhe when he lifted it from the ground. He dropped it hastily, and the minikin limbs lay quivering on the grass. But after a little reflection, he took the prodigy as a possible mark of satanic favor, continued his digging. To his amazement, the next root was formed in much the same manner as the first. A half dozen more, which he proceeded to dig, were shaped in miniature mockery of a woman from breasts to heels. And amid the superstitious awe and wonder with which he regarded them, he became aware of their singularly intimate resemblance to Sabine. So they look like his wife. Yeah. And when he cuts one accidentally with the trowel, he just sort of slices it a little bit. It bleeds actual blood and he hears a scream yeah. as though she were screaming. He can hear it. It's her voice. And they're wiggling as he's pulling them out of the earth. So creepy. But he thinks that it's like, oh, okay, Satan's blessing me with these. So I'm going to take them. Not as he take them. He's like, these are great. I'm going to make some awesome right. love potions. These are, gonna be the, these are going to be the best love potions ever because of these Satan-blessed squirming mandrakes that look like my dead wife. Uh, and I like I noted this one passage that I think is hilarious. Like he, so he takes them all into his past, into his his home, and he kind of like has this internal thought where he's like, okay, well they look like my wife, but they don't have heads, and he figures only he will know they look like his wife because they just look like her body, which I think is really like, and it's phrased amusingly too like their actual resemblance to the person of sabine is a thing which none but he could rightfully know which seems to i guess that also just begs questions like like what was so notable about her naked form that he would recognize it even when it was in root form and 
I don't know. Like, there's just, like, I just find it fascinating where he's like, oh, that's definitely my wife's body. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, her face isn't there. I don't know. That's just interesting. <laughs> it is. It is really. This entire story is super, it's got such a creepy undercurrent to it. Just the, the casualness, but the complete strangeness of everything that's going on. So he makes a lot of potions, but he also notably decides to keep one of the mandrakes just sort of around. Hanging uh, from the ceiling. Yeah. Which is also super creepy. Like He hung it up in his hut amid other roots and dried herbs and simples, intending to consult it as an oracle in the future, according to the custom of wizards. So it's something wizards so do. That, that's just, that's creepy. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of want to get a mandrake and hang it from my office ceiling. You can talk just to Just to see. It's an oracle. Yeah, you know, like wizards do. <laughs> I'll bring one when I come up to visit. So he he makes these new potions and uh, they were bought eagerly because I'm assuming he's talking them up too. Oh um, yeah, like these are my extra strong potions. Right. These are good stuff. And then here's where our mystery narrator comes in, where it starts. Now in the old legend of Averone, which I recount herewith, and then it goes on to talk more about the impious yeah, and audacious wizard. I, I just think that's fascinating. Like, I don't know if if Smith is if the eye there is supposed to be Smith himself. Right. Um, I kind of think that it is. Yeah. Um, if only because, I mean, I would love to make a case that it's like maybe you know some other character from one of their stories, like maybe the guy from End of the Story. But I don't. I don't think either of the texts really bear that out. I think we have to right. assume that it's that it's Smith speaking. As himself, um, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. I feel like this isn't the first time he's done this, too. It happens in... Um, Colossus. In Colossus, yeah. I think that's the other time that it, it happened, notably, where suddenly it's like, oh, there's like explicitly an I who is right. telling the story. It makes it feel like he has this uh, historical tome of Averonian knowledge right. that he just occasionally decides to sample from. His own and book I, of Ibon. Yes, exactly. Um, so he keeps doling out these potions right. because but, demand is high and... But not uh, for too long. Why? Because they work so awesome? No, he has a big sale at first and then people start noticing that some terrible, terrible things are happening. Husbands were turned against wives, lasses against their lovers, with speeches of bitter hate and scatheful deeds. A certain young gallant who had gone to the promised rendezvous was met by a vengeful madwoman who tore his face into bleeding shreds with her nails. A mistress who had thought to win back her recreant knight was mistreated foully and done to death by him who had hitherto been impeccably gentle, even if faithless. I almost feel like this is a comeuppance. I, in fact, I think this is sort of almost a comeuppance for them as oh, much as it right. is for him. He gets the comeuppance of... You killed your wife, and the results totally screw with your your business, your right. life. But they get to come up and for you guys have been buying these love potions for five years now. You've been manipulating the people in your life, whether they know it or not. You know, so like the guy who goes to meet this woman, these potions are supposed to to be able to break down a person's virtue and their resolve and their chastity, and so. I kind of feel like he, for example, is pretty well served when he runs into a mad woman who tears him up instead. I wish, like this, this what is it, four sentences feels to me like its own mini horror story. Yeah. Like I could imagine this story structured differently if, if it were structured more like, I don't know, I want to say Colossus, like more like the unpublished version of Beast of Averro, right. where suddenly mm-hmm. we go and learn these little vignettes and like see these things happen a little bit more. I just or think like it's really cool. And- in Maker of Gargoyles, where it just 
the horse stretches out a little bit longer. Right. Yes, exactly. And it kind yeah. of switches around, switches viewpoints a little bit. But it could I, also uh, be an interesting story of a town that gets its comeuppance. You could do a whole little novel yeah, or exactly. short story you about could it. Do a whole thing. I'm a really big fan of uh, stories that feature an epidemic of murder and madness. <laughs> and like, there's this. This is a totally a tangent, but I'm gonna go on it. One of my favorite Japanese horror movies is this movie called Cure. That's about a um, a hypnotist who is like, like he can hypnotize you by like moving his fingers once. And he just goes about creating like this horrible epidemic of murder throughout Tokyo. And he'll like just hypnotize people to murder people close to them without realizing they've done it. Um, I just think it's, it's an amazing movie. And this little segment reminded me a little bit of that, where you have this sort of a real bizarre epidemic of, of lovers killing lovers in this tiny medieval province. Unfortunately, everybody figures out what's going on. So they all trace it. Wait, before they figure it out though, what's their first thought of what's going on? It's the end of the world. No demon possession. These, oh, well, yeah, of course. These, always these, demon possession. These Averonians, they're always, demon possession is the very first thing. And they're like, oh, wait a second. We were all buying love potions. <laughs> to be fair, they do live in Averon. It could right. have been the case. Exactly. How many people have actually been possessed by demons up to this point in our reading of, uh, of Averon I, stories? I don't think it fair matters point. how many have actually been. It's just these people always, that's their, first, that's their go-to. So eventually everybody realizes that the, the common circumstance with all of these is, oh, yeah, I administered a love potion to that person. Don't know why they're bad this year, but they're really bad. And so the church says, okay, screw it. We were okay with this when it wasn't causing a murder, but enough is enough. And they send people over to arrest them just for sorcery. Nothing about Sabine. However, while they're there and they're leading him away, that mandrake, which he kept like a genius, whispers to them. Dig deeply in the meadow, where the mandrakes grow the thickliest. So the the officers freak out because this this weird voice is talking out of this root that's hanging from his this wizard's ceiling. The authorities decide to listen to the root. <laughs> if a root, if I'm arresting a sorcerer and a right. root tells me to go dig in the mandrake field, I would be really freaked out, but... Yeah, I would go dig in the man. That's a material witness right there. Of untold tales of everyone. (laughs) I am dying to know the story of the uh, authorities who, like, put this case together. Like, I want the wire colon Averone. Like, that's what I'm looking for here. (laughs) I want to see the root testifying court. Digging by lantern light in the specified spot, they found many more of the roots, which seemed to crowd the ground. And beneath, they came to the rotting corpse of a woman, which was still recognizable as that of Sabine. As a result of this discovery, Gilles Grenet was arraigned not only for sorcery, but also for the murder of his wife. He was readily convicted of both crimes, though he denied stoutly the imputation of intentional malefice, and claimed to the very last that he had killed Sabine only in defense of his life against her termagant fury. He was hanged on the gibbet in company with other murderers, and his dead body was then burned at the stake. And I like that he did try self-defense there, because I think if it weren't for the sorcery, the townspeople might have believed him based on their whole fighting thing and the fact that it was just known and right. established. Once again, this there is like actually a court scene in this, I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> it's like CSI Everon. I wish things would have worked out different for poor Gilles. Really? Well, because it was self-defense. But he's just a, he's a creep wizard. He should have. Yeah, but he shouldn't have made those mandrake potions out of the mandrakes from his wife's body. That's weird. That's weird. But, but, but kill and then burn at the stake weird. Yeah. 
Sure. Okay, fair enough. It's Avaro. Hey, if you guys are going to be Blaise Renard apologists, I'm going to be a Gilles Grenier <laughs> apologist. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. Yeah, Blaze sure. was, was, was unconscious of his... We're, we're going to get into a whole argument yeah. about this. Blaze was unconscious about his actions. No, we can't was have like, this conversation. Now. I killed my we wife. Can, we can have Tim. Okay. Save it for the podcast. This is the podcast. <laughs> here's, my, here's my take on Blaze Renard that I've been thinking about since that episode, is that he was such a creep that his creepiness infested these stone blocks and brought them to life. If he didn't transfer his anger and lust into those things, he was going to do something creepy anyway. And he probably would have done it that night. I'm sorry, but I just disagree. I know you do. Because I simply don't think that being a creep is a crime. (laughs) Like, it's creepy, but it's not a crime. It's not like he was like, I am going to turn this stone thing and infuse it with all my creepiness and it's going to go forth and kill it was accident. It was an accident. He's he was a creep. Whereas <laughs> Shield is like naked bodies that look like my wife. Oh yeah, I'm gonna turn those into love potions. He's like va va boom. I remember those tits. I'm taking these back home. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gonna hang one in my thing and like talk to it. That's just. I'm willing to go easy on Shield, but I'm I will still go easier on on Blaise Renard. <laughs> what do you think happened to them in Bloch that they had to leave? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm guessing his last wife. No, I I really don't know. I think that would be another good story. But there's a lot of mysteries in this little story. Yeah, there is. It's not going to be on my list of favorites, but for something short and self-contained, I liked it. Yeah, I dig it. I, I would never put it on my list of favorites either, but it has, it, like, in a lot of Clark Ashton Smith stories, we, you run into something where I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. But in this one, like, it, it's, like, pretty tight. Like, yeah. I feel like it's tight and it's strong, and I like it. I, I put in the notes that it reminds me a little bit of like the EC comic style right. horror. Yeah. Of course, it wouldn't be until much, much later, but mm-hmm. it has that kind of like semi ironic moral confidence about it. Um, and it has the sort of salacious nature of EC a lot where it's like about <laughs> sex. And stuff like that, so. I liked it. I, it might actually be on my top just because of how, just how horrific it was and how casually horrific like i said before like colossus yeah. was horrific but it was on such a big scale it was almost like a cartoon but you want to you want to tell us what smith thought of, the, thought of the story himself well before i do that i just wanted to bring up one thing Gilles name because you know okay. throughout smith's stories the names usually can link back to something or mean something like blaze renard or uh theophile but mm-hmm. uh Gilles grant how do you say it? Gilles Grenier. There was a for real crazy dude named Gilles Deray, Deray, uh, who lived in, oh, I should have had the dates. I don't have the dates right now, but he was, he like fought alongside Joan of Arc and he made a ton of money and he basically used all of his money to put on plays about his own life and bankrupted himself and was into black magic and Killed children. Yeah, and he, killed a lot of children, and they don't even know how many. Right. He's the basis for Bluebeard, right? He's the uh, real-life Bluebeard, if I'm not mistaken, right? I know he, I know he killed children, but I, I, I think that, that, it's, um, that they're related. And he was, um, he was around about the time from 1404 to 1440, so that's 15th century. He's best known as a prolific serial killer of children. So I feel like somebody like Smith, who's obviously into like occult lore, could not have done that by accident, naming a character Gilles Grenet, which is so close to Gilles, Gilles Grenet. I, I think that's a fair yeah. fair idea. Uh, okay, so Gilles Duray is on the list of possible sources for Bluebeard. Oh, okay. uh, fair enough. Cool. Gilles Duray or Connemore the Accursed or some other people. It's a crazy Doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> I know. 
We'll put a link to his Wikipedia page in our show notes. But don't because trust apparently a single we still thing trust. in there. <laughs> in a letter, uh, just after writing the story, called it short, sweet, and medieval, but would later on that same year dismiss it as not a very important item. Which seems a little harsh. It I mean, seem. maybe in the in the grand scheme of his stories, maybe it's not that important item. Right. But I do think it's really, um, I don't know, it's good. I think maybe it didn't fit into his mythos building right. where he has these plot lines where you say, oh, yeah, this guy lived here and this guy lived then. And they talk about each other in their stories. This, you don't have that. Yeah, it's kind of tales of Averone, legends of Averone. Tell us what we're reading next week. So that was The Mandrakes. Next time we will be reading The Beast of Averone. Um, and with that one, it's kind of tricky because there were... I guess there's ostensibly now three versions. There was yeah. one that was published in Weird Tales. There was his original submission. And then there's the Nightshade edition, which is kind of a hybrid hybrid of the, the previous two. was that that was good that was great but is it really thickliest <laughs> i know i swear to god that's that's and, what it's written that's and what's if it's written, ocr'd yeah. in uh thickliest would not be how thickest would would be so probably thickliest yeah, yeah. Oh, i'm gonna start i'm gonna bring that back i well, declare 2012 <laughs> the year of thickliest i second it i require the thickliest steak please <laughs>